grace and thank you for um, this morning, our time together in your word, and that you should uh, extend to us the mercy that we are all very aware that we uh, do not deserve, God, but you have loved us in Christ, and you have adopted us in him, and give us an inheritance, God, uh, incorruptible seed, God, that we are thankful that um, as we as we come before your word that you're working out your um, holiness in our lives. God, we pray you would do that, and we pray you would illuminate the truth of your word to our hearts and minds, and that we would uh, continue to grow in Christ and glorify your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, today we jump into um, what, what you might call sort of the crossover lesson between ecclesiology and eschatology. In other words, we're, we're, we're moving out of ecclesiology and moving into eschatology, but I sort of want to end with ecclesiology by talking about the idea that the church does not just exist in the New Testament, but exists in the Old Testament. Um, that's a crossover lesson because there's an entire eschatology attached to that, or doctrine of last things. So what I'm going to do is talk about that this morning, and then... Then when we come back, starting in February, uh, the first week of February, we will, because we have a break here, we will jump into eschatology, which is Doctrine of the Last Things. We'll spend 12 to 13 weeks or so on the Doctrine of the Last Things, something like that, um, which you're going to find out isn't just the Doctrine of the Last Things, because um, the Doctrine of the Last Things starts in the book of Genesis, goes to the Old Testament, and I want to demonstrate to you that to some extent, all of the Bible story is riding on eschatology. You say, well, how could, how could that be? I thought eschatology is just the doctrine of the end. And when, when are the last days? And are the last days upon us or not? And you need people getting all the stuff. And, and we forget the fact that the point of the last days, if you will, that phrase, is that the first days, when they start, are leading to those. Right? If you think about any story, where does the story start? It's always on a trajectory in some direction, right? You guys follow me on that? Um, so in order to make sense out of the end, you have to begin with the beginning um, to make sense on where's, what's the trajectory of the story, where is it going? And what you're going to find as we get into that study is that there's an awful lot about the end at the beginning of the story. And, and frankly, that we have been what you will call in the last days, um, since the, the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, the entire New Testament speaks about us as in the last days currently, as at the time of the end, right now. Um, and we have been since the resurrection of Christ. So we're going to talk about what does that look like in the story of Scripture. So when we get into eschatology, I'm going to drive through what are all these promises in the Old Testament that they're, that they're waiting for, and how does the fulfillment of those begin in Christ? And then what's left to go or what remains? You follow me on that? Um, so we'll look forward to that. Um, but here's, as we jump into the study of the church in the Old and New Testament, it's really a study of Israel and the church. You just heard those terms. And um, here are the questions that come up when we start talking about Israel and the church. For example... Have the promises, all the Old Testament promises to Israel, been fulfilled? Have they been fulfilled? Do the ethnic Jews have a covenantal right to the land of Palestine? 
so that when we see what's happening in Israel, we say those who uh, God blesses, you you know, you ought to bless too, and God will bless you, or if you curse, God will curse you. You know, we use Genesis 12 and apply it to the ethnic Jews currently in Israel. Is that even appropriate? Are there still covenantal rights that ethnic Jews have to that land? Does that still exist? We just assume it's so in American evangelicalism. But you need to understand something that's only been the case in American evangelicalism for about 160, 70 years now. In fact, that wasn't initially popular, so maybe for about 100 years that's been the popular position. But for the first 1,800 years of the church, they never even heard of that idea. Okay, so I, I, now, in the context of history, we are the weirdos. You guys follow me on that? We are the ones with the strange ideas. Okay? Um, they never even heard of that idea. Um, are there two peoples of God? Does God have two people? The church and Israel. Because that's the assumption that a lot of what people in the United States and American evangelicalism, that, that, that is the basis for what they believe about the end. That there's these two peoples. One group is over in Israel right now and in the promised land, and, and then the other group is the church. Is that true? Are there two peoples of God? Why aren't all ethnic Jews being saved in Christ? How come all the ethnic Jews aren't being saved? How come only some of them are being saved? Does the church begin at Pentecost? Or did it begin before Pentecost? Right? Is there a secret rapture of the church coming? In other words, is there this day in which we're all waiting that there will be a secret rapture and there will be people who disappear and, and then there will be those who are left behind and there will be a seven year tribulation and a rebuilding <coughs> of the temple and 144,000 super Jews roaming the earth and, and you know an antichrist who's here you know, giving them a hard time. All that to end with you know, Jesus returning and, and, and then us returning with him. At the, that point is the resurrection of those who believe. And then you know, we all sort of have um, Armageddon. Then we go into a thousand year millennium in which there's both Jews, physical Jews living there. And then there's the resurrected um, Christians who are living to get, together with non-resurrected people. And um, for a thousand years, and Christ is reigning in Jerusalem on his throne, and there's a temple with sacrifices being offered while Christ is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, and that goes on for about a thousand years, and we continue to propagate, and then Satan gets released, and then he turns all of those people who are not yet resurrected against Jesus and his people, and there's a big war, and they encircle the earth, and then, then there's a, a bigger battle, and then there's the, another judgment, and another resurrection, and then the end. And then there's a new creation, new heavens and new earth. That's the story. Which version takes less time for us to cover? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put up a timeline on the wall here. Uh, the end is according to the Bible. But you guys, that's the story. That's the story that is popular in most evangelical churches. That's a story taught by people I respect. John MacArthur teaches that story. I respect him a ton. That's the story that's popular at pretty much almost every evangelical church in Bakersfield. That's the required eschatological belief at River Lakes, where I was a pastor. It's one of the reasons I had to leave. It's a required eschatological belief at most of the church, 
evangelical churches in town and in America. And you're not, you don't, and if you don't believe that, you're a liberal who doesn't believe in literal reading of the Bible. That's the accusation. That's what I was taught in seminary. Mm-hmm. You go, that all sounds crazy. Yeah, most of it comes actually out of a dream that some false prophet had in the 1800s. Incidentally, just so you know. Um, and then and then it got popularized by Darby, Schofield, Moody, Dallas, um, Seminary, etc. Um, and then it became sort of the regular fare of what people believe. And you understand, just by me saying all that, I'm in, the, I'm in a small group of people. Um, historically, I'm in a huge group of people. But contemporarily, I'm in a small group of people. That all sounds like craziness to most of the church. Okay? The question is, who's right? Could, could yes, you, sir? Could you summarize your view in the same way that you just summarized? <laughs> in the same way? In the same way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can. Jesus... Came, lived, died, resurrected, sent a spirit. All who believe in him are a new creation. They have a future promise of resurrection. We're awaiting that day at which he will come and consummate all things. So one day, Jesus will return. And there will be a resurrection of the dead and a judgment and a new heavens and new earth. And there's one people of God. And there's, there's one. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Whole story. All right, so <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be funny. That's actually it. Um, so, all right, it's simpler. I, has anybody ever wrapped their mind around all the events of the dispensational, secret rapture, seven-year tribulation, millennium, Jewish millennium, anti? I, I will tell you if you think you have, then you haven't read it enough. Because I, I was. I was somebody who was incredibly proficient in that eschatology uh, to the point where the, the father of progressive dispensationalism, which is one of the leaders of that whole view, uh, was my personal mentor in seminary and asked me to go get my PhD and come back and be the defender of it for that seminary. Um, he, you know, I was very proficient at it, and I didn't have my mind wrapped around the whole thing. Because I still had lots of questions. So what's what, what's this whole thing about resurrected people living with non-resurrected people? We're in glorified bodies. They're not. They're still having kids. Um, they're following Jesus. But Satan reappears and suddenly all these people, even though they've been following Jesus physically on his throne for a thousand years, just immediately the whole world turns against Jesus. And how do they, how do they encamp the whole world and cover and, and trap all these people in resurrected glorified bodies who can't die anymore? into Jerusalem as they circle them with Jesus on the throne there and as if they've encircled the earth and we're sort of all there going, oh no, what are we going to do? And then fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. How, what does that all look like? And then how many resurrections are there anyway? And how many judgments? Uh, because if you talk to in that camp, there'll be anywhere from two to three to four judgments and two to three different resurrections. Um couple of Armageddon's slash Battle of Gog, Magog, etc., etc., etc. You can just keep tearing it out. Um, it's big. Big. Popular. Or you can just go read Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be a very bad view of that, as far as I'm concerned. 
So in that camp, there's two groups. There's the charlatans and the sort of people who are uh, kind of cooking the scriptures, if you will, to make a story that they that sells a lot of books. And then there's the responsible types like a John MacArthur. Those two groups are very different groups. Okay, so I don't want to put them in the same category. Um, all right. So the question is, who's right? And we're going to get into that for a whole series and deeper. Um, really just walking through, though, starting off with Genesis and asking what are, what's the eschatological hope, okay? But today what I want to do is deal with the fact that all these questions that we're discussing are flying around the issue of, is there two peoples of God? They're all flying around that issue. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, his um, chapter 19, when he's commenting on chapter 19, talks about two peoples of God. He says there are those who are the church, who are the bride of Christ, at the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And then there are the Old Testament saints, who are those invited to the wedding. But they're not the bride of Christ. They're guests at the wedding. The church is the bride. So they're the bride of the Father, and then Christians are the bride of the Son. Actually argues that in this Revelation commentary, chapter 19. You go look. Um, are there really two peoples of God? That's the, that's the central question. Because the whole precipice of a secret rapture, what's that built on? Not any Bible text. There's no Bible text that talks about a secret rapture. Not one. None. Why do they believe in a secret rapture then? Because for God to return to his work with the Jews, he has to rapture the church out, and then he begins the era in which he works with the Jews. You guys follow that? So the church gets raptured out, and then he works with the Jews, and he begins that dispensation. But there is no work with the Jews until the church is raptured out. And there are no verses that talk about the rapture of the church. Secretly. None. They're all quite public. All these angels and resurrected people appearing in the air, horns being blown, clouds being rolled back as a scroll. I mean, they're just, they're all huge, apocalyptic, visual, public appearances. So this whole secret rapture idea is built upon what? It's built upon an idea of two peoples of God. You guys follow me? The question is, are there two peoples of God in Scripture? That's the question. You guys follow that? The whole idea, do the Jews have the land of Palestine and there are promises waiting for them, ethnic Jews, the land of Palestine, that still have yet to be fulfilled, and therefore you have to have all these events to fulfill them, is built on the precipice of the idea that there are two peoples of God. The church and Israel, because there are two sets of promises. Promises for the church and promises for Israel. You guys follow me on that? Okay. It's all built on this idea. So this is where we have to start. To start with this question. Are there two peoples of God? All right. Um, and that question is all answered variously um, today. In other words, there are various ideas about how you answer that question. Question. But let me give you a couple of them. Ethnic Israel, there's one. Ethnic Israel retains a covenantal right to the land of Palestine. There are promises to ethnic Jews that remain unfulfilled. There are two peoples of God, Israel and the church. The current dispensation is a time of God 
that God is saving his New Testament church, which began at Pentecost and which will end at a secret rapture, at which time the Lord will return to work his work with ethnic Israel. That's the one that's most popular in the church today. Are you follow me on that? That this is sort of a um, an interim period. That Jesus was offered to the Jews the Jew, to be the physical king of Israel. They rejected him. So sort of, if you will, in a very friendly way, plan B started. Jesus died on the cross, rose, and saves the Gentiles now. And eventually we'll return to that work with the Jews. And we're in that period right there. Some call it the parentheses, the great parentheses. This whole period of... All right. Um, I'm going to begin arguing that there's one people of God, the church, Israel, one people, same group. I'm going to argue that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. And all the elect of both the Old Testament and New Testament are incorporated into Israel in Christ. We can call this group the church, thus I do not believe ethnic Israel Listen to what I'm saying. I do not believe ethnic Israel retains a right, a covenantal right, to the land of Palestine. I do think they're a good strategic ally for the United States. I don't think they retain a covenantal right to that land. That might be a shocker. Nor do I believe there are any promises to ethnic Jews which remain unfulfilled. At least not in the Old Testament promises. Therefore, I do not believe in a secret rapture of the church, followed by a tribulation, then a millennium. And I'll do a lot of work to give flesh to this all starting in February. Uh, a lot of work. But I want to start just with the beginning. So in order to set the table for our discussion, I want to lay down some hermeneutical principles which we get from Scripture. In other words, if we're going to come at this, we better get our hermeneutics in place. right? How do we even read the Bible? That ought to be the first question we get in place. Um, so, so here are some assertions I've, I'm making about hermeneutics. The th things I believe that come from, I think, the New Testament um, that itself on how you read the Bible. You guys ready? Okay. And I think that these five things, I, if you take the regular hermeneutics of you've got to study the history and context and grammar and all that of the text, great. I agree with all of that. Okay. You follow me on that? I'm not overturning any of that. But history, context, grammar, etc. isn't everything. So what are some other rules I believe in with regard to hermeneutics? Because I ought to state these right up front so you know my ground rules, so you know <coughs> what my assumptions are. Because you know every time you come to a text and read it, you have assumptions, don't you? Every time you come to a text and read it, you have assumptions. And you might not understand this, but you have lenses you're wearing when you read that text. And, and many of you understand this because you went for years in the church, if you're anything like me, you went for years in the church when your lenses were essentially um, like mirrors that as you read the Bible, you just kept seeing your own face in it. Right? You guys know what I'm saying there? You just had a very man-centered reading of the Bible. Every verse you looked at somehow had to relate to you. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then one day somebody tells you, hey, it's about Jesus. It's not about you. And then you went, oh my gosh, and then you got saved. Okay, so, the, uh, <laughs> you, guys, you guys understand what I'm saying, all right? <laughs> you, you, you guys follow me on that? You wear lenses. As you read, there's more truth to it than we all want to admit, let's face it. So, <laughs> the, the, the point is, is that you wear lenses when you read the Bible. You always do. So, I might as well tell you up front what mine are. 
in addition to, I believe, just like every other Protestant, anybody you hear that's, that's a good Bible student, in historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. You guys follow me on that? Um, I even believe in a literal approach to Scripture, but I, but I use the word literal to refer to literary genre. You read something according to its literary genre. In other words, poetry has rules for how you read it. You read it according to that genre. You follow me? Prophecy has rules for how you read it. History or historical narrative. You guys know this, by the way. You know it instinctively because you don't read a, a novel in the newspaper the same way. Right? You don't listen to a, you don't read a poem the same way that 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 you read a letter. You don't read them the same way. You guys follow that? You know you're not supposed to. If you do, you're a really bad reader. Okay? Same is true with the Bible. When you read the Proverbs, you don't read it the same way that you read a prophetic book. When you read the story in Genesis 4, you don't read that the same way you read a psalm. You follow me on that? Or an epistle, letter. You understand that. So almost all Bible teachers agree on those things. You follow me on that? you got to know the historical background. You gotta understand context, you gotta understand grammar, you gotta understand its literary genre. Pretty much everybody agrees on that. So let me give you the additional lenses that a guy like me and my approach to scripture has, so you know them up front. No baiting and switching you here. I'm just gonna let you know up front. One, here's the first one. The New Testament has interpretive authority over the Old Testament. That's my first lens. That's how you will see me approach this entire topic. All the way through. The New Testament has interpretive authority over the Old Testament. Here's what I mean by that. I believe Jesus and the apostles get the Old Testament right. <clears throat> now, how many of you guys go, duh, that's a, that, of course that's true. Anybody in here? Okay. When I was in seminary, I was told that wasn't entirely true. I was told that the apostles and Jesus had a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit in which they could interpret the Old Testament in different ways than what the Old Testament authors meant or intended. It basically worked. They can do it, but you can't. That's exactly what we were told. Yeah. You, they can do that. You can't. The way you read the Old Testament can never be the way they read the Old Testament. <laughs> because the way they read the Old Testament is not the proper way to read the Old Testament. Wow. Hear that? Jesus and the Apostles. Okay. New Testament, but I, I believe the New Testament authority uh, in, has interpretive authority over the Old Testament. In other words, when I see an Old Testament text, and I see a New Testament text comment on it, the New Testament text commentary is true. Even if I can't figure out exactly how they got that out of that Old Testament text, that means I just got to study that Old Testament text more. Okay, let, let, let me give you some examples in a little bit, but... Um, well, actually, just let me give you one right off. Go, go, to, um, go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. There are some questions here. I'll just give you a few little ones. The beginning of the verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way. By the way, where does that come from? Does that come from Isaiah the prophet? No, that comes from Malachi. So does Mark not know how to read the Old Testament? No, because Isaiah is the major prophet. He's quoting two prophets together in this text right here in verse 2 and 3. And when you quote two prophets together in the first century, it wouldn't be unusual for them to just cite the more well-known of the two prophets. You follow? Isaiah's a major prophet. Malachi's a minor prophet. He just cites the more major prophet. Because the next part, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's a quotation from Isaiah. What's interesting there is he's talking about when he says that Isaiah is saying, slash Malachi is saying, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Here's my question. Who's the messenger? Who do we find out is the messenger in verse 4? John the Baptist. Baptist. Uh, He's the Old Testament, you know, since Elijah, right? He's the Elijah coming before the Messiah that's promised. Now let me ask you a question. My messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Who's, who's your? Who's the you talking about? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus right? Okay. Now, go to Malachi chapter 3. <clears throat> this is Yahweh speaking. Okay. Here's the Lord speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, what's interesting about that is, Mark has changed that text, hasn't he? He's changed it. He says, before your face, (coughs) and he will prepare the way before me. Who's the me there in Malachi 3? Yahweh. Now, in Mark chapter 1, who does Mark take the me to be? Jesus. Jesus. So, Mark has just made an interpretive decision about the Old Testament, hasn't he? He's just said, that me, Yahweh, is also Jesus, is in fact Jesus. Which, by the way, is a claim to divinity for Christ. Take your Jehovah Witnesses friends there first. Right? When you want to claim to the divinity of Christ. It's a clear claim to the divinity of Christ. You guys follow me on that? Let me show you another one. Matthew chapter 2. Just to give you a couple of examples. You guys are familiar with the story um, of Herod wanting to kill baby Jesus. Right? Now, verse 13 of Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Who departed is the wise men, right? They had come somewhere between the time Jesus was one and two years old. I'm sorry, they weren't at the nativity. I know we all see them at the nativity. They weren't there. They were there a year to two years later. Uh, There weren't three of them. There were probably somewhere near a hundred of them. Uh, They came in a huge group. They weren't. They didn't have those funny names. <laughs> What's that? I need a bigger mantle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you're right. I need a bigger mantle, and it needs to be big enough to provide space for them to be on the journey. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. So anyway, um, but 
them that Herod wants to kill Jesus. So an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Um, Herod dies in about 4 B.C. So this happens at some point before 4 B.C., which is why most scholars date the birth of Christ somewhere between 5 and 7 B.C. Herod dies in 4 B.C. So they go there. Now look what it goes on to say. And remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now notice this. What do they say that Jesus going to Egypt and then coming out again is fulfilling? A prophecy. The Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. So go to Hosea 11.1. 1. Now here's the Lord speaking about Israel. When Israel was a child... When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, is that a prophecy? No. You just read that in Hosea 11.1. 1. Just read Hosea 11.1, 1, not having read Matthew 2. Is that a prophecy? No, what is it? What is it just reading it by itself? It's a historical comment about the exodus of Israel, isn't it? It's what it is. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, Israel is my firstborn what? Son. Israel's is my firstborn son. You better let them go or else I'll do what? Kill your firstborn son. Right? Exodus chapter 4, they're called his firstborn son. Israel's called the firstborn son of God. Now here... God is commenting on that through the prophet Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, my firstborn son. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Historical comment about God's love for his firstborn son, Israel, whom he called out of Egypt. But in Matthew, Matthew says, this is Matthew saying this, Apostle Jesus, that when Jesus goes to Egypt during Herod and comes out, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if I'm using normal, historical, grammatical, literary lens to read this text, Hosea 11.1, 1, would I get what Matthew said from it? Never. Never. just all by itself, naked and by itself. But when I understand that Revelation is progressive, <clears throat> that the Bible is one unified book, and Revelation progresses, in other words, over time the picture gets clearer and clearer and clearer, then I understand that Jesus and the apostles have interpretive authority over the Old Testament. And so Matthew is now saying, what Hosea 11 1 is saying is actually a prophecy. You know who it's talking about? Jesus. He is the firstborn son. He is the true Israel. Not Israel, the physical ethnic nation, but Jesus is the true Israel. This was always about him. What Matthew is saying is, 
What you saw in the exodus of Israel out of Egypt being called out as a firstborn son, whom God loves, is just a type or a picture of what is coming in the Christ, who is the true Israel himself. That's what Matthew's saying. Now, you thought Israel, ethnic Jews, were the firstborn son all along? It was always, it was always Jesus. Now, either Matthew got the Old Testament wrong, and if so, you might as well close the book and leave. Chuck the church and Christianity because the apostles don't understand the Old Testament properly. Or perhaps, just perhaps, we ought to take the New Testament's word for what the Old Testament means. Okay, so that's what I believe. Those are a couple examples. By the way, I could multiply examples for uh, at least a semester, and that's essentially a lot of what I'm going to do in the spring. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to go through all of these Old Testament prophecies and all these New Testament sayings, which continue to point back. Revelation is 80 plus percent echoes, allusions, and quotations of the Old Testament. In different ways than, than you might read it just all by itself in the Old Testament. So is John right? Did Jesus give John a proper revelation of how all of these ideas roll out? Just follow me on that? All right. Second hermeneutical lens. So there's the first one. The New Testament has an th interpretive authority over the Old Testament. In other words, short, shorthand, Jesus and the apostles get the Old Testament right. Second hermeneutical lens. Jesus is the true Israel. Okay? Jesus is the true Israel, and the whole redemptive story of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. Okay? Now, I just gave you one example of that in Matthew 2. But let me give you several. I am the true vine. Who's the vine of the Old Testament? Israel. Go read the prophets. What is Jesus saying when he says, I'm the true vine? Right? Let, 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 me, let, me, try to, let me try to multiply some more. He's the firstborn son. He's the true vine. Any others? You guys have any others? <coughs> any others? How, how many apostles? How many apostles does Jesus pick? Twelve. Why? Are oh, there twelve tribes in Israel? Aren't there? I'm, maybe God just infatuated with the number twelve, or maybe something's being said. Right. Well, let's try the Book of Matthew just in its layout. Just start there. Okay. So, in the Book of Matthew. Jesus arrives on the scene. John the Baptist says he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. What's the first thing that happens with Jesus? You know? What does John the Baptist do first? Baptize him. Baptize him. Doesn't want to. He says it's to fulfill all righteousness. So he goes ahead and baptizes Jesus. Jesus goes into the water, comes out. The Father makes a declaration about the Son. The Spirit descends on him. Which, by the way, Isaiah 42 is clear that the Spirit was going to descend upon um, this messianic figure who's coming, the Spirit descends upon him. He is then declared to be the Son of God with whom I'm well pleased, which is language about who in the Old Testament? Israel. And he's in the water, he gets baptized, he comes up out of the water, and the Spirit leads him where? Wilderness. Into the wilderness. Now let me ask you a question. When, when, just before that baptism, what's happened? Jesus come out of where? Egypt. And why did he come out of Egypt? Because what's happening? 
Herod's wanting to, he had to go to Egypt because Herod is wanting to kill all the firstborn, all the, all the sons, the young sons, under two years old, right? Now, has that ever happened in history where a leader, a king in the area wanted to kill all the young sons? Mm-hmm. When did it happen? Pharaoh wanted to kill all the young children, okay? <laughs> and then, then what, what happens? Jesus comes out of Egypt, like Israel did, and then we're actually cited that he's called, he called his firstborn son out of Egypt, and so he comes out. And then where does Jesus go when he comes out? He goes into the water with, with John the Baptist. And where, where did Moses and the people go? The Red Sea. And by the way, in case you think I'm stretching that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul calls the parting of the Red Sea the baptism of Moses. Okay? Just in case you think I'm stretching that, I'm not. He calls it the baptism of Moses. If you deal with that sometime. Baptism? What? The baptism of Moses. Does Paul not understand the Old Testament? Okay. And they come through the Red Sea. They come out. And then where's the first place the Jews go? Wilderness. Wilderness. And what do they do there? Wander. They wander for 40 years. They get tested. Tempted to sin. What does Jesus do when he comes out of baptism? Where does he go? Wilderness. And what happens to him? He gets tempted to sin. Same temptations. What does Jesus cite from as he fights off those temptations? The Pentateuch, the Torah, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy Oh, what, 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 because those are things Israel was supposed to say. And then, when Jesus comes out of his temptation, where does he go? Anybody know what happens next in Matthew? Goes to the mountain and, uh, and gives what? The Sermon on the Mount. Now, where does Moses and the Israel go after their temptation? To the mountain, and what do they get? Mount Sinai, and what do they get? The law, the Ten Commandments. And what does Jesus comment on at the Sermon on the Mount? The Ten Commandments. What do you think is happening there in the book of Matthew? He's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point? (laughs) You you guys following me on that? Okay, I mean, we could just... (laughs) I could multiply these kind of examples all... I mean, for semesters. That's essentially all that we do as as, as New Covenant pastors is we teach how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what we do. The New Testament tells us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Old Testament. Right? So what I'm saying is Jesus is the true Israel. Now I'll get into that a little bit more. So therefore the whole redemptive story of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. Which is why Paul can make a crazy statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that all the promises of God... Now, now catch it. How many promises of God? All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Not some of them. All of them. Alright. Number three. Uh, part of my lens. Already, not yet. So the New Testament has interpretive authority of the Old Testament. Jesus is the, true Old Te- is the true Israel and the whole redemptive story of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Him. And there's an already, not yet understanding um, of the end. You can follow me on that? What do I mean by that? What the Old Testament saw as the last days, the New Testament sees in two advents. The first and second advent of Christ. So there's the already, the first advent, and there's the not yet, the second advent. You guys follow me on that? The second coming. The already, the first coming, the not yet, the second coming. So that Joel, let, let, let me point this to you, because this might throw you for a loop real quick. Look at Acts chapter 2. 
<clears throat> Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching at, a at Pentecost. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, Peter. Now, now let's look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's the only third hour of the day. They started counting at 6 a.m., so that means it's 9 in the morning. Okay? So, only third hour of the day, 9 in the morning. But this is what was ushered through, or excuse me, uttered through the prophet Joel. Now notice that, this is what, what you see happening right now is what the prophet Joel prophesied. Now notice what he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what's interesting about that or fascinating about that is Peter doesn't just quote verses, if you will, 17 and 18. He quotes the whole thing from Joel there. And he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, what you're seeing right now is the fulfillment of this passage from Joel. This passage in Joel is being fulfilled right in front of you. In the last days. Did you guys just catch that? In the last days, God, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days. But it's being fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Saying right now, the, the, what, is, what is Peter saying? These are the last days Joel spoke of. We're in them right now. You're seeing it right in front of you. That's why the Spirit's being poured out. Because one of the great promises of the Old Testament is the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. Now, <clears throat> that started, didn't it? Did it start? started. It's starting right there. The last days already started. Now, are they completely fulfilled? No. Because there is a day coming when Christ will resurrect physically the living and the dead. But he's already resurrected you spiritually. That's why you can say if anyone is in Christ, he is what? Like a new creation. Right? Isn't it like a new creation? No, he is a new creation. So, the new creation, now catch this, the new creation already started. You guys follow that? The spirits being poured out means the last days already started. The new creation already started. The resurrection of the dead has already begun. Because you're all, if you're in Christ, resurrected already. That's why if anyone believes in me, he shall not die. 
I want you to stop and just catch hold of that. The Spirit has already been poured out. The last days have already begun. You're already resurrected and shall never die if you believe in Him. You're already a new creation. New creation's already begun. Okay? Yet, there's still promises that there's more to come. You guys follow me on that? By the way, all of that has huge implications for how you see the Christian life. Massive implications for how you see the Christian life. Okay? <clears throat> and the scripture. Because there's an already sense in which this is already taking place. And there's a not yet in which Christ will return and consummate all of it. You guys follow me on that? It's a little bit like, um, there's been an analogy thrown around for years and years. It's a little bit like um, how D-Day, you can't came before V-Day, right? You guys know what I'm talking about there, World War II? Okay, so D-Day came. When D-Day came, V-Day was inevitable at that point, right? But it still had to be played out before V-Day happened. You guys follow me on that? Okay, it's a little bit like that. D-Day happened. You guys follow me? Okay. All right. Now, now either Peter doesn't understand Joel properly, and he's just got it all wrong, or 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 perhaps Peter is giving a spirit-inspired interpretation of the prophet Joel that we ought to accept as true. All right. So there's an already not yet what the Old Testament saw as simply the last days or the last day. The New Testament sees in two advents, the first and second coming of Christ. Yes, sir. You know the part about the sun will be turned to darkness? Yeah. Is he, so he's saying that's happened. Yeah. Also. So all of that visual stuff that people are looking for may not come the way. Well, and it may have come. So, for example, when Jesus' death on the cross, what happens? The sun goes dark for three hours. It goes dark. Right? And if you go through Old Testament prophecies in multiple places, these kinds of descriptions are actually descriptions of even small national or regional judgments. So, for example, when Babylon is is judged, there that the sun turns dark and the moon does too, and everything turns to blood, and it's you know stars fall from the sky. It's all apocalyptic language. This is apocalyptic language, and the apocalyptic language being used here is um, is if you look at verse twenty two, it's whenever this apocalyptic language happens, somebody's being judged. Okay, look at verse twenty two. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What, what's, what, what's Peter, this isn't a friendly sermon, by the way. What's he telling them? What you see right now is your judgment. What you're seeing all around you is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. The Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. All these men are speaking the gospel in tongues of foreign nations, not in the tongue of the Hebrews. Because, and you see all these signs around you, because you're being judged because you crucified the Messiah. So this is judgment language. This is why they're eventually cut to the heart and repent. What should we do? Right? Because they recognize, oh no. You guys follow me? This is a heavy judgment sermon. 
This isn't the kind of sort of, he wasn't up there going, you know what, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That wasn't what he was saying. <laughs> that is, you know, greatest, if you will, evangelistic sermon in history. It has none of that in it. He, it's just God is all gooey and ooey and his heart about you and he's, he's just in heaven, can't hardly wait to affirm you and he's got a little magnet on his refrigerator with your picture and he's just longing over his future with you because you're so wonderful. Right? Okay, that's not what's being said here. Okay, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, it's hard, it's hard to believe. Okay, um, <laughs> all right, so there's an already not yet. Now, when I say that, Jeff, there's judgment language here, apocalyptic judgment language here. There's an already sense in which that apocalyptic language is taking place, and there's a future sense for it, too. You, you follow me on that? So it'll take place in smaller regional national senses, but that's all pictures pointing forward to the large worldwide sense in which it happens. Okay. All right. Um, which I'm going to show you all that already not yet in the New, Te- and in the New Testament other, throughout the story of Scripture in, in the spring. I'm just giving you my hermeneutics here and giving you some text so you understand it. All right. Four. Prophetic language. Okay. Um, so I said the New Testament has interpretive authority over the Old Testament. Jesus is the true Israel. Thus the whole redemptive story of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. Um, that the, there's an already not yet um, understanding of the end, that what the Old Testament saw as the last days, the New Testament sees in two advents. And then the fourth one is that um, there's prophetic, that there's a, a proper use of prophetic language. You follow me on that? So, for example, here's what I mean by that. Prophecy can only interpret the future in terms which make sense in the present. You hear that? Prophecy can only interpret the future in terms which make sense in the present. You guys hear what I'm saying by that? Okay, so if I'm giving you a prophecy about the future, in order to give you a picture of it, because prophetic language and apocalyptic language are very picturesque, aren't they? So in order to give you a picture of what I mean, what do I have to do? If you're going to understand me, what do I have to do? You have to make it terms I understand. i got to use pictures that make sense to you, right? Hey, I can't use picturesque language that's future that would make no sense to you. I've got to use picturesque language that makes sense to you now, right? Or else you're not going to understand it. Because we're going to assume that the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of this prophecy for people to understand. Do you follow me on that? In other words, he didn't give Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah thinking, well, nobody's going to understand this, and I don't care. Right, okay? One day they'll finally understand it when they have computer chips and Apache helicopters and, you know, okay? Right? That wasn't the idea. Okay, you guys follow me? All right. I'm sorry. Go, 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 to, go, to, Isaiah. You got to, go to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm sorry. That was a low blow. Okay, Isaiah 2. All right. Satellite TV, so you can watch all these things all over the world, right? Okay. All right, Isaiah chapter 2. Let's look at this word of the Lord. Now, now look at this, verse 1. The word of the Lord that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So, what's he seeing this word concerning? Judah and Jerusalem. Now, that's interesting because notice this phrase in verse 2 it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, what, what kind of language is that? That's pretty prophetic eschatological language, right? Okay? 
latter days. That phrase, just go do a study of that phrase sometime. And the problem, don't do it in the NIV because they don't do a good job translating it. Go, if you're going to study that term, the best version to stand, study it in English, if you only read English, um, if you don't read Hebrew and Greek, is in the NASB. Even though I'm using the ESV right now, for a word study of that phrase, latter days, the best English version to use is the NASB, just so you know. Um, they do the best job of bringing out the language there. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now look at, and, and many people shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there's this prophecy that in the latter days, all the nations are going to come where? Into the house of the Lord. Into Israel. Alright. Now, very prophetic. Now look at what it says. Verse 4. And I'm not going to walk out this entire prophecy. I just want you to notice this. Here's the language they would understand. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Okay. What does that mean? No more there war. There will be weapons. They're not going to need any weapons for war. Wow. What? What is? Does Does that mean that in the future we're going to get rid of when this whole end time thing comes? We're gonna We're gonna get We're gonna go back to fighting with swords and and we're gonna go back to fighting with spears. That because in order for this, I mean, I have read people who've actually argued that at some point. There's some kind of apocalyptic sort of event around the world in which we lose all this technology. You know, there's like a great, you know, you know, you guys have seen sort of these apocalyptic movies or shows, right? And we lose all of our, yeah, we lose all the use of all of our technology. And so now we go back to swords and plowshares and we're battling with that. And then eventually the plowshare, you know, uh, or the sword becomes a plowshare and, and the spear becomes a pruning hook and... And it's like, wait, just slow down, people. What's the point of the text? There's a time coming in a lot of days when what will end? War. War. It'll end. There will be peace. Shalom. In the latter days, that time is coming. This is a way they would understand it. If the readers of Isaiah are hearing this, they go, oh, he's saying there's coming a time when there's going to be real peace. When the nations are going to come together in the house of the Lord. When there will be no more war or division between us. And when God will judge those. You guys follow me on that? Alright. Prophetic language has, has to be interpreted in terms which make sense in the present. You guys follow me on that? He's speaking about the future in terms which make sense in the present. Okay, By the present, I mean now, being present to those people reading. Okay, so that's my fourth hermeneutical lens, if you will, that I'm trying to put on as I read all this. Fifth, hermeneutical lens. Jesus is the anti-type to, to all Old Testament types. In other words, every type in the Old Testament finds its anti-type or its, its true fulfillment in him. Okay, Now, where do I get that? Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Because I have interacted with scholars who don't believe there are really any types in the Old Testament. <clears throat> or, 
or not very many anyway, and you run into something like verse or chapter 10 of Hebrews verse 1. For since the law, now what's the law referring to here? The old covenant with Moses. Okay? Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what does the law contain? Shadows. Shadows. Where's the reality? The true form of the reality? Christ. Christ. Now, the author of the Hebrews is not being platonic here. Okay, If you don't understand what I mean by that, that's okay. He's just going to state that for those who do. That's not what's happening here. What he's saying is, in the Old Testament, you have all these types. They aren't the true form. They aren't the main point. They're pointing forward to something. Christ. They're pointing forward to him. Otherwise, verse 2, they, these, these sacrifices that happened, what, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed, uh, they would have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. It goes on and on. And then he comes on to tell you what? That Christ has put an end to all sacrifice. Because all of it just pointed forward to him. Nobody was ever saved by the shedding of, bulls, of the blood of bulls and goats. Ever. How were Old Testament people saved? In Christ. In Christ. They were saved in Christ. They were never saved by the blood of bulls and goats. They were saved by Christ. Those were all pointing forward to the reality. You follow? Okay? It was Jesus. That's why he puts an end to all of this. Let, let, me, let me give you... Um, that's a direct statement, by the way, that type, anti-type, fulfillment. Okay? Direct statement. But just... Just in case um, you're wondering if there are any others, just look at Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, what's he talking about there? The Old Testament, right? But in these last days, oh, oh, eschatological language. We're in them. These last days that we're in right now, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, all of this pours forth speech throughout the, all these prophets pour forth speech throughout the Old Testament, and in these last days, he speaks to us anew. His Son. Speaking. Are those two inconsistent messages, or are those one message pointing to the final one in the last days? Follow me? Okay, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 1. And look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, by the way, he's just talked about this great salvation we have in Christ. Okay? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What did the prophets do? 
They search inquiring carefully about what? The salvation that you now know. In who? Christ. Look at what they say. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, the writers of the Old Testament, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Who were they serving in the Old Testament? What were they pointing to? Jesus. The salvation we know in him. And you know what's amazing? They knew that. They knew they were. You don't have a bunch of Old Testament prophets who have no idea that they're talking about something that's fulfilled in Christ. So when the apostles and the and, and when the apostles and Jesus are interpreting the Old Testament in this way, they're not getting it wrong. Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets knew they were speaking in terms that were looking forward to Christ. They knew it. Now either Peter doesn't know what he's talking about, or he does. Those are your two options. Uh, I'll, let, let me give you one more. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, just, just to, to belabor the point a little bit. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of examples here. Let, let, let me just... Let me just give you a couple, just to just to sort of tweak your mind this morning, and, and then and then I'll. Oh, they're already tweaked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good. Mind blown. I'm glad to hear it. Look, look at Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. Now, where was he supposed to go? Palestine, right? Okay, the Holy Land. He's supposed to go there. He's called Genesis 12 to go, and he obeyed by faith. You follow? Okay? To go. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. So he goes to the land of promise, but how does Abraham live there by faith? Now notice, he's living there by faith in a particular way, comma. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise in a particular way. What is it? As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. How does he live there in that land? As a sojourner, foreigner, intense. Why? He's in the promised land. He's home. Why does he live there like a foreigner? By faith. Why does he live there like a foreigner? Verse 10 explains it to us. For, here's your explanation. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. What was he looking forward to? The promised land? What did he think by faith God had ultimately promised him? The land of Palestine? By faith, what did Abraham think God had promised him? The new Jerusalem. Christ. The city whose architect and builder is God. Abraham believed that that was what God promised him in Genesis 12. In other words, when the apostles and Jesus interpret the Old Testament this way, they're not getting it wrong. These authors in the New Testament are saying that's what the Old Testament guys believed. Uh, look down at Moses. Verse, uh, let's see here. This is this is a great one. Verse twenty-four. By faith, when he was grown, grown up, Moses, right? 
by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now notice this strange verse. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What, what was... Why did Moses leave Egypt? For who? Christ. What was he looking forward to? The reward that he got in Christ. Interesting, huh? This is why you can get verse 39 after he gives this long explanation of all these people who died for the faith, who lived for the faith, who fought for the faith, who believed, who in Jacob's case sat up in bed for the faith. Okay, And verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? All these Old Testament saints. They're the great cloud of witnesses telling us that we're to be looking forward to Jesus, who's the author and founder of our faith. Because they were. They hadn't received yet what was promised. They were looking forward to it. They were believing it by faith, but they had not yet received it. Because Jesus is the antitype of all the Old Testament types. That's my hermeneutic for approaching this topic of whether the Israel and the church are one people or two. Um, and that's all I really have time to cover today. Um, so when we come back, I want you to understand that I believe that Jesus, that the old that the Old Testament Israel and New Testament church are the one people of God in Christ. That Christ is the true Israel. That he's the true son of God. And that all who are in him are the people of God. Old Testament and New Testament. You guys follow me on that? So I'm not saying that the church is the true Israel as much as I'm saying Jesus is the true Israel. And therefore all who are in him are Israel in him. Follow me on that? Okay. I'm not saying that the church are the true sons of God or the Old Testament saints are the true sons of God. It's like Jesus is the true son of God. And therefore all who are in him are adopted as sons of God. And I'm going to drive that point. I'm just giving you the hermeneutic today. I haven't even started to make the argument yet. That's just the hermeneutic. Those are the five things I see as, as I'm coming into this. So I want you to know the New Testament has interpretive authority over the Old Testament. I.e. Jesus and the Apostles get the Old Testament right. Jesus is the true, Jesus is the true Israel. And the whole redemptive story of the Old Testament finds fulfillment in him. There is an already not yet understanding in the New Testament of the last days. What the Old Testament saw as the last days, the New Testament sees in two advents. There is a prophetic language through which we read, there's a way to read prophetic language where we read prophecy interpreting the future in present terms. Okay? And Jesus is the antitype to all the Old Testament types. He is the rock in the wilderness, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. Right? I, I mean, you know, you guys, you, he's the light of the world. He's the bread that came down from heaven. He is, you guys know all these things. You've heard these types over and over again, right? Okay? He is the true temple. He is, any, anyone want to throw some in? Any other Old Testament types you want to throw in? 
Okay? There's lots of them to just be able to rattle them off. Just, just from John alone. Okay? He's all the, all the feasts. Find their fulfillment in him. He's the Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. The true prophet, priest, and king. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. What does the What's striking about the New Testament is it takes all that is in the Old Testament and says, this was all about Jesus. And the future is all about him. In other words, what I'm trying to drive at today is when I approach the end times, I don't have an Israelocentric hermeneutic. I don't have a hermeneutic that says, what's God doing with Israel? Uh-oh, here's a parenthesis. Now when's he returning to his work with Israel? I have a hermeneutic that says, this is about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's about Jesus. Everything has to be interpreted through the lens of him. I have a Christocentric hermeneutic. When I was a dispensationalist, I had an Israeliocentric hermeneutic. That's what I had. I'm going to be honest with you. Not to knock dispensationalists. Um, there are men, like I said, who are dispensationalists, whom I respect greatly, who I think interpret the Bible very inconsistently on this point in that they get it right in lots of places but then they don't want to take it all the way to the conclusions that the New Testament takes it all the way to so so they start telling you read the New Testament like a believer read the Old Testament like a Jewish rabbi and I'm not kidding and and then you start going how does the Old Testament have anything to do with my Christian faith but when you realize, well, the Old Testament's the book Jesus read. It's the book the apost that's the Bible that Jesus read. The Old Testament's the Bible the apostles read. The Old Testament's the Bible the early church read. They didn't have a New Testament for some time. And then they started getting pieces of it. That was their Bible. And you know what they believed? It was all about Jesus. So that Jesus they believed it because Jesus said things in John 5 like, You search the Old Testament, you search the scriptures, because you believe that in them you have life. And it's they that talk about me. Right? So he says in John 5. says in Luke 24. As he's taking them through. He opens the, got these guys' eyes on the road to Emmaus. And what do they say? He showed us all the things in the Old Testament. And the apostles say the same thing at the end of Luke 24. In the whole Old Testament concerning himself. So... What I'm driving at here is the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so everything is about Jesus. And that's how I build my eschatology, is around him. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so that's what we'll do when we come back in February. With that said, uh, sign up for the deeper um, conferences we're having. They're called the Sovereign Grace Academy Conferences, but you're welcome to sign up online at our website, Go sign up for them. 75 bucks for three great scholars we're bringing in. Um, I would encourage you to register for those. I got, I set those up for you all. Because you all are geeks enough to be here at 6 in the morning. So you're geeky <laughs> enough to come on a Friday evening and Saturday. Your wives can come as well if you want to bring them. They, they're, they're welcome to. Um, if you have them and you want to bring them, you're, you're welcome to. But they, that, I'm bringing in three really incredible scholars. And um, it's going to be a great time. Scripture alone, pastoral theology of Charles Spurgeon, and biblical theology uh, or, or of the temple. 
In other words, G.K. Beale is going to come. You think I tweak you wait till you hear G.K. Beale. He will make you go, what? I mean, you will feel like you have never read the Bible before in your life. I'm not kidding. And you just see, you'll see it right there on the page and go, why, why, how did I skip all this? So, um, anyway, he's, he is the preeminent expert in evangelicalism on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Um, by the way, if you want to understand more how the New Testament reads the Old Testament, he wrote a book called The Handbook on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. It's a small little book, Handbook on the New Testament. He also wrote a commentary on the New Testament Use of the whole Old Testament with D.A. Carson. It's like that big. It's huge. That's a very helpful book to have as you're reading the New Testament because I would encourage everybody, especially if you're a Bible teacher like Mikey, you should own that commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament because every passage that comments on the Old Testament or that alludes to the Old Testament they comment on how the New Testament is using that passage. Very helpful to have. So if you guys uh, are teachers at all with other people, it's super helpful to have. So um, that's Beale and D.A. Carson who do that together. But, all right, any questions? I don't know how you can just drop that bomb and then expect us to wait. I wanted to drop a bomb and make you wait. That brings you back. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Merry Christmas. So is this replacement theology? That's the big thing. You're a replacement theologian. No. No. Replacement theology is a dirty word that dispensationalists made up to accuse those who hold to the belief that the Bible's about Jesus um, and not Israel. Um, you know, that, I mean, to, to be honest with you, it's not, it, they call it replacement theology because you're saying, you're replacing Israel with the church. No, we're not. We're saying Jesus is the true Israel. That's different. I'm not saying that there's Israel and God just got done with ethnic Jews and started with the church. In fact, I'm not going to, I'm going to make the case that it never was ultimately about ethnic Jews. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't about ethnic Jews. It was always about the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Never. Yeah, always you, the children of the promise. you get that from the New Testament. And I get that from the New Testament. I do, I know. <laughs> Romans chapter 9. Has the word of God failed? Certainly not. What does he go on to say? It was the children of the promise. Never the children of the flesh. That's why God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And he chose Jacob and not Esau, because it was never about the children of the flesh. Not all Israel is Israel. What is Paul saying there? That there's Israel and non-Israel even within Israel. Who's real Israel? The children of the promise who are elect in Christ. They're real Israel. And who's elect in Christ? Everyone who believes. Amen. New Testament and old. So Israel has never been the physical ethnic descendants of Abraham. Were they called Israel in a civil, national sense? Yes. But they were never Israel in the true fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises sense. Galatians 3 couldn't be clearer about that. He's very clear. Everyone who's in Christ is a son of Abraham. Everyone who's in Christ is a son of Abraham. What does so he mean? The current nation state of Israel doesn't have any more to do with any of this than any other... No, it can't possibly. By the way, in fact, in um, I don't think it does. But Isaiah always... or Jeremiah, I had to find the passage. But one of the passages, I think it's in Jeremiah. He actually makes the comment that anybody who tells you that an unrepentant Israel—this I'm summarizing theologically what what it says—I'm just commenting on it. 
But anybody who tells you that an unrepentant Israel is an inheritor of promise is a false prophet. Did you hear that? They're a false prophet. Don't listen to them. Now, there are lots of evangelical pastors running around today telling you what? That Israel, in 1948, fulfilled a, a, a prophecy about them was fulfilled. A promise of God was fulfilled. They went into the land. But have they repented and turned to Christ? No. So what does Jeremiah expect me to conclude about somebody who says that? Especially when John chapter 8, these Jews come to Jesus and say, we're sons of Abraham. And he says, no, you're not. You're offspring of the devil. Because if you were sons of Abraham, you'd believe in me. <clears throat> you're not children of Abraham. You're children of the devil. Now, either Jesus is right or Jesus is wrong. Right? Jesus either properly interprets what it means to be a child of Abraham, or he doesn't. Paul either properly interprets it, or he doesn't. So what, I, what I'm trying to drive at here is, while I'm glad that all these ethnic Jews who were being genocided during, not glad they were being genocided, but who were being, while I'm glad that they were given a land and a nation and are protected and are free, and while I believe wholeheartedly that we ought to continue as a nation personally, I think it's a good foreign policy for us to protect them because they're the only free people in the Middle East. And they shouldn't be genocided based on their ethnicity. <clears throat> I'm glad they're there. I don't think they should be genocided based on their ethnicity. I do think America ought to be strategic partners with them. I don't think that has anything to do with Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. <clears throat> Not one thing. Because they don't believe in Jesus. So they're unbelievers. They're not saved. There isn't a separate covenant for them by which they can be saved apart from Christ. Never was. Moses' covenant never saved anybody. Right? Abraham's covenant never saved anybody. David's covenant never saved anybody. The only covenant that never saved anybody is the new covenant. It's what the author of Hebrews clearly says, doesn't he? And based on that, isn't it interesting the number of evangelical uh, preachers, pastors, <coughs> who uh, preach that very thing that we need to protect our brothers in Israel? That we need to protect... Israelites, because they're human beings who shouldn't be genocided. Right. That's true of any nation it's in true the same situation. Any nation sure. in the same. It's, it's, it's hard not to look at all the evil aligned and focused on Israel and not think that there's something powerful spiritual happening. There, there is. They're being judged. Which is what Jesus promised would happen to them. Didn't he? He made very, very difficult statements about what would happen to them if they did all not over, repent. All over the Old Testament. Didn't he? Yeah. All over the New Testament. Jesus is constantly saying, you're going to come under judgment. And it's happening. It's true in the Old Testament as well. The countries around them are also being under judgment because Israel is extremely powerful in terms of... Oh, gosh. The guys, judgment's flying all about. It's not like judgment is coming on... I mean, they're... Putting that sure. on everyone around them sure. as well, if, and they could do a lot more. Sure, but they're, they're I mean, they're, let's, let's not, I, I'm just going to tell you this, this is zero, zero to do with my foreign policy. I just said, don't think Israel, in its current form, is fulfilling any promise, promise or prophecy of the Old Testament, other than the promise or prophecy that if you don't turn to the Christ, you will abide under the judgment of God. They aren't the people of God unless they believe in Jesus. The Bible's clear about that. 
And by the way, Ephesians 2, 11 and following is very clear that there's one people of God. I don't know how we can't get our minds around the fact there's one, no longer two, but one. Neither Jew nor Gentile. Okay? You guys follow me on that? We're all one in Christ, being built up into a temple. Anyway, I, I could drive on this all day long, right? Okay? So, it, but we're, I just want to get at that. So, but yes, Jeff, people would accuse me of being a replacement theologian. They would use that word. You're a replacement theologian, for sure. Without a doubt, they'd use that word. I used to use that word about people like me pretty frequently. Okay, so I just say just like Jesus was. Just like Jesus was, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 Is that because you're (laughs) 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 They're saying that you're replacing Israel with the church. That's what they're arguing. You're replacing Israel with the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's, I'm saying that there's, there is an Israel of God. There's a spiritual Israel. I'm saying what Paul's saying. There's a spiritual Israel and an ethnic Israel. The spiritual Israel are those in Christ. The ethnic Israel are ethnic Jews who aren't in Christ. And that the spiritual Israel are, is the one who gets all the promises. And that Abraham and Moses and David all understood that. And that Jesus and the apostles all understood that. And that we're supposed to understand that. In fact, I would tell you that the New Testament goes to great lengths. Takes great pains to try to get the church to understand that. So how did you evolve just clear, more reading, understanding? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was joking with one local pastor when I met with him. And he said, how in the world did you leave dispensationalism? He was, he's... He's a great guy, good Bible teacher. I think he's a solid pastor, but a dispensationalist. And he asked me, how did you, how in the world, you know, I mean, I said, I read the Bible. And he, he laughed. But the, honestly, I, I, I said, I've got to look at my hermeneutical lens and ask the question, are the lenses hermeneutically that I'm putting on the lenses hermeneutically that the New Testament gives me to put on? And what I concluded was they were not. And if they're not, then I've got to put on a different set of hermeneutical lenses. And when I did, then I saw the Bible radically differently than I did before. Before, I saw all these two different plans, and I didn't know where anybody landed in it. And was was God, like, I didn't even know in the Old Testament that God was even about saving the nations. I didn't realize the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. I mean, I knew there were some things in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. I didn't realize the whole Old Testament really is supposed to be a Bible about him. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Like, this this was all... So, there was a... I had to test my hermeneutics. In other words, we come to the Bible with a set of presuppositions by which we read it. The question is, are our presuppositions provided by the Bible, or are they provided by something else? And I believe they're provided by the Bible. So, I have certain presuppositions that come in, like there's a unity of the Bible. The whole Bible is unified, and therefore the whole Bible speaks... Um, univocally about itself. In other words, it's 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 not like the Bible has different uh, voices who disagree. They all agree. So then the question becomes, how do I find them agreeing? You follow me on that? How do I where do I find their unity? And if I find their unity, and I would say the New Testament tells me I find it in Christ, that provides me those lenses. I don't find it in Israel. 
in the sense of ethnic Jews that God is working on. And then I find this little parenthesis called the church age. And then Jesus, will, and the Lord will return to Israel. I don't, that's not how I see the history of the, uh, of the story. So I had to challenge my hermeneutics, my way of interpreting the Bible, and ask the question, is this what the New Testament provides me as to how I interpret the, New Te or the Old Testament? And what I'm saying is, is that some of the reasons I gave you today, those five things I gave you today, are those five hermeneutical principles that, that change the way I read the Bible. They are not five hermeneutical principles, by the way, that dispensationalists agree with. They don't agree with them. Um, they'll agree with some of them or all of them to a degree, um, but in a very narrow sort of way. So, um, and I, just, I just think they get it wrong. So that changed, and then my whole reading of the Bible changed. So, I, I mean, I didn't even work out the, like my end times view. I just wanted to re work out how am I supposed to read the Old Testament according to the New Testament. I just wanted to work that out first. Do you follow me on that? Mm -hmm. To answer your question. And once I work, started working through that, then, then it all, it all, all the pieces fell. So, I, I, yeah, that's why I spent time on that today. Which, just a little bit of time. I mean, that's barely anything. There are whole books on that. So, all right. Any other questions? I'll, I'll pray. Let me pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for giving us your word um, and your spirit to help us understand your word. We do know that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, our hope. He is everything the Bible's pointing forward to, looking back on. Um, Father, pray that we would understand your word properly, be faithful to trust what you say, and to follow and believe what you say. In Jesus' name, amen.